Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. I'm Alison Savas. At around 11 times forward earnings, UK equities are the cheapest they've been since the 2008 financial crisis, apart from COVID. And they're the cheapest in the developed world. Even relative to their own history, UK equities are trading at a 20% discount versus the US at a 15% premium. While the rest of the developed world is seeing inflation rapidly fall, goods inflation has remained stickier in the UK, leading the market to assume that the Bank of England will have to remain relatively tight. And this is weighing on sentiment and equity valuations. So is the UK economy structurally different from the rest of the developed world? Or can inflation fall faster than the market expects? And can a shift in inflation expectations be the positive catalyst to take UK equities higher? Joining me today is James Rodder, Portfolio Manager of Developed Markets and the Antipodes Global SMID Strategy. As well as briefly discussing the macro backdrop, we're going to delve into Antipodes' three largest UK listed investments, the largest Western Spirits company, and two dominant domestic businesses that trade on a fraction of the multiple of similar businesses listed in Australia and the developed world. Welcome, James. Hi, Alison, and thanks for having me back. James, inflation in the UK is still the highest amongst the G7, and it's still around 6.8%. And this is driving negative sentiment around the UK macro. Why is inflation in the UK relatively stickier than the rest of the developed world? And can it fall faster than the market expects? Uh, look, Alison, service inflation is sticky everywhere, thanks to tight labour markets, and the same can be said in the UK. Though despite Brexit, there's no real evidence the UK labour market is tighter than elsewhere. But where the experience in the UK is different from the rest of the world is in goods inflation. It has been stickier in the UK, which is in part due to being a very important dependent economy. The Bank of England predicts inflation will fall to around 5% by the end of the year, with the market expectations around 4.5% but we think it will fall faster than this. Reason number one is China being large, one of the, lar- the UK's large import partners. It's experiencing deflation. Uh, the PPI in China is now at negative 4.4% year on year, which will have a meaningful drag on the UK's inflation rate over the next uh, six to 12 months, and historically is highly correlated with UK inflation. Secondly, there's been a strong currency in the UK which is now up year on year against the US dollar and up 15% off the lows. So with the direction of PPI and imports uh, and the currency, our analysis indicates core goods inflation in the UK can fall closer to 0% by the end of the year. And if if so, we see that headline inflation number falling closer to 4% or perhaps below. So even though core goods inflation currently looks sticky, it can revert faster than the market believes. And, and this can feed into policy rates. Is this the catalyst investors are looking for? Because at just you know, 10.6 times forward earnings, it feels like there's room for the market to price in a more positive scenario. Yeah, look, certainly we think that's, that's the case. Um, the Bank of England, along with central banks around the world, they're obviously very data-driven, uh, particularly at the moment. So the market expects the policy rates t- to peak at around 5.8% early next year versus 5.25% today in the UK. If core CPI declines the way we think it will, we would expect the BOE to react uh, and the rhetoric to lean dovish and the market will start to price in a different scenario with lower interest rates. 
And despite the meaningful rate hikes, we think the UK economy also has been relatively insulated. More than 50% of mortgage debt is held by the top two deciles of uh, income earners. Uh, the mortgage market has strong origination stress tests uh, in terms of both um, income and interest rates. Um, so we're less worried about credit risks there. And the fundamentals of the economy look okay. Um, the household broadly is in a relatively okay position. Uh, a better than expected inflation outcome can definitely change the market sentiment. We've already spoken about the trajectory on goods inflation, uh, but services inflation also has the potential to surprise. We haven't seen wage growth, you know, strong, strong wage growth in the UK pull back yet. Uh, and there's meaningful industrial uh, action education, healthcare, transport sectors, et cetera, which is putting upward pressure on public sector wages. But there have been emerging signs of some softness in the labour market, which could take the heat out of wage inflation. For example, vacancies have trended down, even though, and so even though unemployment still remains low compared to pre-COVID levels, um, the data on vacancies is looking good. So for example, we're now back down to 0.8 of a job advertised per unemployed person from 1.1 jobs being advertised per unemployed person uh, you know, only several months ago. So we're tracking labour data closely uh, and we do see the market loosening somewhat. And what is the downside scenario? Yeah, look, the most obvious downside scenario is the risk that the Bank of uh, the BOE, the Bank of England, is backward looking. They over tighten or they take too long to pause uh, if they focus too much on wage inflation rather than broader inflation and the b- broader GDP, GDP growth. And this drags the UK into a, a deeper recession than is expected. Similar to what we see. In, other U- in the US and similar to other developed market economies as the core risk. Governor Bailey has said the BOE is willing to create a recession if that's what's necessary to bring inflation down. Um, so putting that together, we definitely think being too hawkish, high rates for too long is the key risk. Mm. James, that gives us a, a really good overview of the macro backdrop. So let's shift to stocks. Today, I wanted to discuss our three largest UK listed holdings, and that's Diageo, which is the largest Western Spirits company, supermarket giant Tesco, and retail bank NatWest. So let's start with Diageo, a company which, you know, I think many listeners may not realise they already know. Diageo has a portfolio of very dominant brands like Johnny Walker Scotch, Tanqueray Gin, Guinness, Bailey, Don Julio Tequila, and and I will stop listing them because we're all going to turn off and head to the pub if I go on. Um, Now, spirits is an industry in which two-thirds of the market is represented by small-scale local players. But Diageo leads with 10% share of international spirits. How has the company built such a dominant business in a very fragmented market? Yep, let's put it down to three factors, Alison. So regulatory licences and, and the right to operate, let's call it, the age of their inventory, and finally, uh, the extensive investment in distribution. So on the right to operate, um, if you think about the portfolio, scotch can only come from Scotland, tequila can only come from certain parts of Mexico, cognac can only come from 
that particular town in France. And so you can't compete um, unless you have that plot of land or that distillery in that uh, specific location. So very real barriers of entry to competitors for key parts of the portfolio. Uh, inventory age um, as a sort of second competitive advantage. Uh, take Johnny Walker, which is a key revenue driver for Diageo. You have either 10-year-old whiskey or you don't. And if you don't, it'll take you 10 years to get there. So Diageo has the largest premium scotch portfolio in the industry with 35% market share globally uh, of, of, of the scotch market. Um, it would over-index to the premium market there as well. Uh, it's three times the next largest competitor in scotch. Um, more than half the company's portfolio is more than three years old, which has also put the company in a relatively strong position in terms of the recent inflationary environment versus other staple businesses which are feeling you know, the full brunt of higher input costs come in uh, very quickly into the, the cost pace over the last 12 months. The last one I mentioned is uh, distribution. The company owns its own distribution where it's possible and where they don't own it, for example, in the US, the distributors consolidate around Diageo because it's such a dominant player and distributors want their brands. In spirits, distribution is more complicated than in other consumer goods in most markets because you're not only supplying supermarkets, which tend to have uh, like very reasonable or strong negotiating power, but also the more complex on-trade environment, which represents anywhere from 20 to 40% of the market, depending on the geography and category. So think about that as um, bars and clubs, pubs and restaurants, etc. So distribution is important not only for obvious reasons, such as getting the products into consumers' hands, but also for controlling the market, educating consumers, educating bartenders, and activating products. Interestingly, one of the brands that you didn't mention at the start is Casamigos, uh, the tequila brand that Diageo owns. So tequila, you know, Diageo has uh, well, 20% of the US businesses now tequila, um, and the Casamigos brand is you know, a strong premium brand. Um, they paid $1 billion for that several years ago. It's now They've increased sales now to $500 million, uh, typical multiple for a business like this with you know, premium profit margins would be you know, five to seven times sales. So basically buying an existing startup brand, let's call it in Casamigos, which is obviously famous with George Clooney, uh, having been amongst the founders, pumping that brand into their existing distribution network has created you know, significant, uh, an amount of value significantly uh, in excess of what they paid for that product. Mm. And, you know, looking ahead, where do you see Diageo's big growth opportunities? Yep, look, overall, um, big picture, uh, we like the spirits industry, which is taking share from, from beer and wine. Um, and then... We like the company's position in that in, in the industry for reasons we've already discussed. It's dominant in terms of brands. Uh, it's got a very strong inventory position. Uh, the distribution uh, position that they're in means the company has uh, strong pricing power and can grow acquired brands very strongly. In addition to this, they're increasing their weighting towards categories that are winning share like tequila, scotch, premium spirits, ready to drink. Uh, they are under-indexed to weaker categories in spirits like vodka. So the company's driving revenue growth. 
uh, more broadly across a portfolio of premium brands that are in the right categories uh, within the spirit market and the spirit market is the right category within the broader alcohol market. Over the longer term, uh, we also think emerging markets are a key part of the growth story. Um, They've got a strong foothold in uh, India and China uh, and fairly dominant positions in Latin America and Africa. Uh, The companies, in terms of valuation, we think it's also extremely attractive. Uh, Trading at around 18 times forward earnings, we think operating profit growth should average in the high single digits over the medium to long term. Um, The company is buying back stock, so you'll see that in terms of um, free cash flow uh, and earnings per share because the stock buybacks can be more like a double-digit growth level. And just for context on the valuation uh, versus the quality of the business and the duration of the growth profile, you've got consumer franchises that we would argue are are less exciting, perhaps Pepsi, Hershey's, uh, Procter & Gamble, Colgate, these types of names trade on 22 to 25 times earnings. Uh, They're lower, you know, they have lower organic growth rates um, than Diageo. Um, 50% of the profit is US-based, but it is priced at a discount, and we we would take that back to the discount that we're seeing in UK stocks broadly, and we think that if it wasn't listed in the UK, it wouldn't be on 18 times. It might be on one of those those higher multiples that those other names trade on. Switching gears from spirits to supermarkets, let's shift to Tesco, which on face value may not seem as exciting as discussing Diageo buying Casamigos from George Clooney, but Tesco is the leader in UK online grocery, but it's priced at only 11 times forward earnings. And this compares to Woolworths in Australia or Walmart in the US, which are both priced at closer to 25 times forward earnings. What do you think the market is missing? Yep. Thanks, Alison. Look, that's it's a, it's a large discount, 11 times versus 25 times. And it's, um, it's one we, we, we think about a lot and it does imply, you know, a really negative outlook for the business that we just don't see. So we think the market's focused on negative sentiment around the domestic macro. Um, now price cuts in the face of falling goods inflation. Um, but it is missing that the company has been a winner in the transition to online. Uh, it's defending its market position very strongly against the, the discount grocers, so Aldi and Little, etc., uh, and that the industry remains rational. If we take a step back at the broader structural shifts happening in the UK industry, we think we, we think they're fairly well placed. So um, the first shift we would talk about of sort of three key shifts has been the emergence of the discounters, so I think Aldi and Little that are taking more share. It's a cost-efficient offer, uh, a cheap and cheerful retail format with a very small range of products. And the cost savings are passed on to consumers in in terms of lower prices. Those guys have steadily taken share in the UK over the last decade, like we've seen in lots of other markets globally. Um, But we think Tesco's fought off the discounters reasonably well via price-matching products to protect market share whilst the other full-price retailers have been slower to respond on price matches and as a result have continued to lose more market share and also have you know, the downside in the current base of earnings because of the need to lower the prices in future, which you know, Tesco's already done. 
The second major shift would be the shift to online. So Tesco you know, launched online in 2000, uh, has a you know, nearly 40% market share in the online grocery business in the, in the, US, in the UK, so it's fairly dominant there. Um, for context, they're 27% market share in offline grocery. So as grocery purchases move online in the UK, uh, Tesco naturally increases its market share, which is you know, something that we like and provides a natural, uh, natural tailwind to growth uh, for the company. Certainly the barriers to entry for anyone to take that market share in online uh, are, fairly, are fairly high given the, um, the, the store base and the existing delivery density. The last one we talk about would be data. Um, Tesco for a long time you know, owned one of the Euro- leading European data businesses to the grocery sector. It provides information to grocery companies across the continent called Dunhumby. Um, and so with that business uh, and a growing loyalty stream, they now have you know, 80% of purchases coming through loyalty uh, and they have you know, the highest uh, NPS score uh, in the market and they can offer very targeted and personal, importantly personalised offers to their customers. So Tesco is competing head on with the discounters and it's shifting online, which typically is a higher cost model versus traditional in-store shopping because of the additional infrastructure required, like fulfillment centres and and delivery. And on top of this, um, you know, as we've spoken about throughout uh, in the earlier part of the top, uh, podcast, the company has had to manage high and rising inflation. Has Tesco's profitability been impacted? Um, in a word, the answer is no. Um, not to date, and we, we, we don't think it will be. Um, margins are not going up, but they're, they're they're holding steady. So they've been look. They've been really disciplined around costs uh, and cuts, and um, to compete, you know, on market share with the discounters and protect their market share. Um, but they pass on. They've been passing on increases in prices during the inflationary period, and now that we're seeing some deflation, you know, double-digit drops in the prices of vegetables and the prices of um, bread and pasta and other basics. Um, they're also passing those on back to the consumer. So they've been reasonably consistent um, right through this period and you know, highlighted that they can defend against inflation. Um, we think they've got very strong supplier relationships um, that enable them to get good prices no matter what the situation um, and pass on those great prices and a great range and, and quality to their customers. Um, and they have a bunch of other initiatives. So they've increased their share of private label or Tesco branded items, um, which are more profitable than branded goods, uh, particularly doing so in, let's call it high end or high quality branded products um, launching launching you know 126 new products in what they call the finest uh, private label segment uh, early next year um, as I've mentioned they're growing their proportion of loyalty spend it's now 80 uh, percent net promoter score is the highest in the market um, and significant cost and efficiency programs over the last few years so um, with another one billion to come out from energy saving, from remo- removing food waste, uh, and from from things like automation as well. In terms of the move to online, and we think about that 
that part of the question on margins. Um, UK is very densely populated, which is key to running an online business. The obvious other thing that's important is uh, scale in a local market. Um, they have that, so they have they have the density on the, the drop density, which is very important. Um, and similar to, to to Walmart, they have these large hypermarket formats that have so much excess land on the on the on the local site. So, you know where they're picking and packing the items from isn't far from where they have to do the drop, which saves a lot of money on logistics. So, um, we think that business has turned profitable and will be incrementally margin accretive, um, uh, but hasn't been materially dilutive uh, to Tesco at the moment. So, if I was going to sum it all up. It is profitable. It's defended inflation very well. It's got some great structural growth drivers that it's, it's part of in the industry. Uh, 11 times earnings, as you mentioned, 9% free cash flow yield can sustainably grow it. Let's call it 4 to 5% through the cycle. Um, so your starting return is that, that cash flow yield plus, plus the growth. Um, and if we're lucky, we'll get a re-rating from above that current uh, very low multiple as well for... Uh, which should also juice our returns. Probably lastly, Alison, it is worth noting that you know, in this current environment, it is a very defensive business, um, and that's another thing that we like about it, in addition to you know, Diageo, which is, again, also quite defensive. And finally, NatWest, which is the second largest retail bank in the UK with almost 20% share of all primary bank accounts. I think it's an understatement to say we've seen a lot going on in the banking sector globally this year. Uh, James, how has NatWest ridden the recent cycle? Um, Look, reasonably well. Let's start with looking at the UK banking system uh, more broadly. It's a relatively consolidated system. The 10 largest banks are around 80% of the load market, so um, not too dissimilar to Australia and what we're used to here. A very re- well-regulated system. Uh, lending has been conservative since the GFC um, in terms of strict uh, you know, loan-to-income ratios, etc. From from the regulator. Deposits are concentrated in the system. Pricing has been rational. Um, about 80% of uh, household lending is mortgages. So it's, again, similar to Australia. But it's mostly done through bank channels, unlike in the US where most of the mortgages are on 30-year terms and originated effectively by capital capital markets. So we think it's a, a great market where um, banks can earn attractive returns on the largest lending class for the, for the household, that being the mortgage, without taking a lot of duration risk. In terms of you know, at origination, most mortgages in the UK are uh, short duration, so thinking two to five years, and NatWest... Uh, has also has one of the you know, the highest market shares in terms of low cost um, SME and household deposits, which has made it uh, somewhat rate sensitive uh, to to the upside. Um, overall, um, it's a low low duration balance sheet, which allows them to benefit from higher rates over the medium over the medium term and through the cycle, um, and a market that. A market structure that is not, uh, let's call it, hyper-competitive. So you've painted a, a pretty attractive picture around market structure and a NetWest appears well-positioned relative to its peers. In that last answer, you called out some similarities to the Australian banking system. 
Yeah, NatWest is priced at five times forward earnings with around a 10% dividend yield and, and buybacks um, to top it up. While Australian banks are priced at at least twice that multiple, and you know, in the case of CBA, it's even higher at around 18 times forward earnings. What do you think the market is worried about? Yep, look, um, look, the return on equity, for example, is 18%, which is on par with C- CBA, if you want to re- reference that number. But I think since Brexit, um, the political you know, the political deadlock around Brexit that we now see in the UK, uh, the perception of it being you know, a permanently lower growth economy, uh, have all weighed on broadly on the pricing of, of UK stocks. Um, but, you know, per that return on equity and, and, and the profitable business they're running, it hasn't uh, hit the earnings of this bank. As we've discussed already, uh, the UK's had higher inflation. Uh, there's been an uncertainty around that interest rate regime um, and, you know, credit risk and, and, and a credit crunch essentially facing 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 banks or sort of facing borrowers, household borrowers, and therefore causing losses for banks. So um, are UK borrowers going to default en masse? Uh, mortgage rates have moved from 2% to, let's call it, 6.5%. Um, we've touched on this earlier, but the distribution of the mortgage debt is important as a sort of first point to answer that question. Uh, half the mortgage debt is in the top two deciles by income. Um the second thing we'd point out is there's still very large pent-up savings in the UK when we look at household balance sheets. Um, at a system level, uh, you know, regulation from post-GFC has sort of been reasonably, well, and post-European crisis has been reasonably strong in the UK. So four and a half times debt to income limits for households. You know, In Australia, we might see loans often at six times or above income levels. Uh, stress tests, even with mortgages being originated at the time at, say, 2% interest rates, stress tests, four, seven to 8% uh, mortgage rates You know, above current levels. Um, then we've got sort of some of those structural factors in terms of the housing market that we also see in Australia. So a tight housing market supporting house prices um, and low, let's say, market value, loan-to-value ratios, where we see loan-to-value ratios across across the book, the mortgage book of NatWest at around 60%, meaning that on average for them to lose money on, on that loan portfolio, uh, home prices would need to fall 40%. Um, the other concern... On, on, on the other part of the balance sheet is, you know, let's say repricing deposits uh, in a higher interest rate market. Um, so that would benefit, obviously, the net interest revenue benefit uh, that banks receive from from higher loan prices. Um, I think the UK, you know, the consolidation in the UK sort of means there is limited options for customers to take deposits out of the banking system. Um like what we've seen in the US, for example, more like Australia again in that regard, um, where deposits will tend to stay in the system. Um, if we look at um, this bank specifically, NatWest has uh, a loan-to-deposit ratio of around 85%, which means um, only 85% of their deposits are lent out, and so they have a lot of room there. If you take a competitor in the market like Lloyd's, that's more like 100%, and then you take a, a weaker bank uh, in the UK, like a, like Virgin Money, which is the old um, 
Clydesdale Bank, the National Australia Bank used to own, their loan to deposit ratio is like at sort of 110%. So in any deposit pricing, you know, NatWest has a lot of room to move to fund their loan book before they need to get involved in any um, in any sort of um, competitive market situation around around deposits. Um, so overall, look at five times earnings. We think we have a lot of margin of safety coming, you know, in multiple multiple different ways. Um, in terms of capitalization, uh, it's a well capitalized bank uh, with a clear communicate, you know, a clearly communicated uh, payout policy. Um, we have confidence in a ten percent dividend yield. Uh, and then look, when we look at buybacks, we expect to get you know something near the twenty percent earnings yield return to shareholders each year. So we think the bank's priced for a deep recession. It's a quality bank in terms of its its return profile uh, to equity holders. Um, but it's just sort of macro recession fears uh, around the UK that are driving the business at the moment. Um, and we would expect, yeah, again, that, that 20% earnings yield is to be something that we can earn, plus hopefully um, some sort of multiple re-rating from there. That's fantastic. Thanks for your time today, James. That's been a, a really great update. Thanks, Alison. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when the next episode goes live in a few weeks. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.